The rock that followed them was Christ. We learned that last time around. And we drew your attention, of course, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That is a good commentary on the very chapter that we're at in Exodus. The rock which provided them with water and was the answer to their problem. We should, however, just uh, pause a little before we go any further. I want you to note uh, what was a similar but a different situation 40 years later. And we should note it before we leave uh, the passage that we did consider last Lord's Day. I turn you to Numbers chapter 20. Will you turn there please? Numbers chapter 20 and the words of verse 8. And as I've said to you, here is a very similar but a different situation. Because it involves a lack of water again. And you'll notice uh, what the Lord told, uh, told to Moses. Chapter 20 of Numbers, verse 7, Lord spake unto Moses, so it's the command of the Lord here. Verse 8, take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. Thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Now look at verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod he smote the rock twice and the water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. So there was a very similar situation as what we have read at Rephidim. There's a thirsting for water. This is 40 years later by the way. And God told Moses to speak to the rock and the water would be forthcoming before their eyes. But Moses of course in his anger he was to take the rod and he was to smite the rock. And by doing so, he had forfeited leading Israel into the promised land. And you have read that no doubt before. And you have asked your, or you have said to yourself, that's a very harsh judgment. He only smote the rock. And now he's not permitted to lead Israel out into the promised land. The reason being men and women is this. The rock was not to be smitten for a second time. For that would mar, that would ruin the type that was in view. You see, Christ was to be smitten once. And the rock has been smitten once at Rephidim. He wasn't told to smite the rock a second time in Numbers chapter 20. Because we learn, of course, uh, number, uh, Romans chapter 6, I should say, and the words of verse 9. For it says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For than he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Christ is the rock. He made one offering and one sacrifice for sin forever. It was a finished work. Men, women, young people being finished, it didn't need to be repeated. Calvary can never be repeated again. And that's why Moses wasn't to smite the rock in Numbers 20 a second time. It was already smitten once because the type was Christ. And hence... Moses as a servant, a servant in Numbers 20 failed. For there's only one perfect servant. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who shall not fail. 
So there's the reason, if you've ever thought yourself why Moses didn't reach into the lead the children of Israel into, his, into the land of Israel, that's the reason. Because he disobeyed and he smote the rock twice and it marred the type. How it reminds us also, however, of God's grace. Despite the murmurings of Israel, Numbers 20 again, in spite of Moses' failure and the methods that he used being wrong, God still caused the water to gush from the rock and their every need was supplied. You see, that's the God whom we worship today. He's the God of all grace. And to return to our passage, in this place where the water was given, it was to be marked by given, being given new names, albeit they were unusual names. Massa means temptation. Meribah means strife. You see, they were a reminder to Israel of their behavior. Israel needed this constant reminder of their sinfulness and how they reacted to their trial. It ought to have prompted them to a better behavior in the future. You see, God forgives our sin, men and women, but not always does he take away the scars of our sin. And that's a mercy. It's a mercy to prompt us to be to faithful obedience. Some scars are still there. But no sooner is one trial overcome than then there's another that arises before them. You see, Rephidim is a place in the Scriptures not only where the water shortage was supplied by the water that came forth by the power of God from the rock, but it was also where Israel was to have their first taste of warfare. How varied our studies have been already up until this point where Israel is concerned. They've been delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians. They have received miraculously the manna and the water from the hand of the Lord. And now comes their first battle. We often speak of Egypt in the scriptures as a picture of the world, the system of the world. Pharaoh gives us a caricature of the devil himself and of his power. And we have seen Christ, of course, he is the Passover lamb and the sufficiency to meet the needs of his people by the giving of the manna from heaven and by the water from the smitten rock. But what these verses introduce us to is an enemy. Amalek is to be compared to the flesh and the flesh is your enemy. That enemy with which we first come across in our Christian walk after that the Holy Spirit has come in and abides and takes up abode within the heart of the child of God. And that is noted even in where we find Israel at these verses. Rephidim has the meaning of resting places. It's not long after we know that rest that alone can be found in Christ and in his work of redemption that we discover we have the flesh against us. We have an enemy here. Yes, we have a threefold enemy. There's the world and there's the devil. But men and women, the first one you'll come across after you get saved is the flesh. You just consider who Amalek was. Turn back to Genesis chapter 36. They're known as the Edomites or the descendants of Esau. Genesis 36 verse 10. Verse 9 tells you the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. Here's a few names. These are the names of Esau's sons, Elipaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, 
Ruel, the son of Bashamath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Elipaz were Timan, Omar, Zipho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was concubine to Elipaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Elipaz Amalek. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. There you have their genealogy. There you have the name of Amalek itself. That is the Esau, of course, who sold his birthright for a morsel of meat. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Now, you'll see that Israel didn't attack them. It's the other way around. Verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. They were a people known for their anger and their aggression. And does that not, not suggest to us the flesh and it strives to have its own way? It's worthy of note what Moses said about this time when he was to recall it later on about the conflict, Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'll come to this passage a little later, but verse 17 for now he just says, he says this, Remember, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. Don't forget this. Amalek had no respect for God or for his people. And the flesh is no different. It has no reverence for the Most High. And so I want us this morning to consider something of this. Amalek is a type of the flesh. Let me show you the conflict. While as God's people we have been set free from the system of this world. We're no longer of the system of this world. Although we're in the world. And Christ has done that for us. Yet we're not set free from the flesh until we reach glory itself. You just listen to what Paul has to say to the believers in Galatia. And there are a few uh, scriptures I'll be turning to this morning. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. Remember these are converted believers now. Converted sinners I should say. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Just stay there by the way and I'll come to that in a wee moment. The flesh will always be the flesh. Even though we have been born again of the spirit. You understand? That while child of God now you belong to Christ. God has done that work within your heart. There's a new resident in the heart. It's the Holy Ghost. Yet the old flesh is the old man. And there's always going to be the conflict. That's what Paul is saying. They're contrary one to the other. You can call it the new man and the old man. Or you can call it the spirit and the flesh. But there's always going to be that conflict. And that includes every child of God. No matter what the status or position in life is concerned. No matter if you're saved five days, five weeks, or fifty years on the road with the Lord. Here is the flesh, the enemy. And it has to be contended against. And the only way to overcome it is by the help and the power of God's Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 16. Paul says to them, This I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's the answer. Israel faced Amalek in the wilderness. 
And as God's people, we have a fight on our hands. We have to fight many battles against the flesh in this old spiritual wilderness of this world. Do you see the suddenness of it here? As Israel approached what would have been the territory of the Malachites, the warlike tendencies were aroused within them and they prepared for an encounter. It does not say that Israel had any warning. It simply states, Then came Amalek. Out of nowhere. Amalek is suddenly on the scene in all their military strength ready to do battle against the children of Israel and that despite the family connections of course between them their two brothers uh, two leaders being their father the fathers being two brothers but it teaches us also that as long as the sinner is in sin the flesh is content But when there's a deliverance by God's salvation and by His grace, when God takes up residence, then the flesh is uh, suddenly aroused to fight against the Spirit. Out of nowhere, the flesh is stirred to withstand any advances of the new man. You see, men and women, the flesh doesn't like it when the believer experiences the blessings of God. He doesn't like, the flesh doesn't like the Lord's provisions, the Lord's blessings, the Lord's sweetness and fullness. The flesh is against the Spirit. It's also selfish. There must have been some sight to see approximately three million Israelites approaching on the march. But for Amalek, they weren't for sharing their territory with anybody. Motivated by selfish ambitions, the Amalekites were not going to tolerate their presence. And so they came against Israel. And so will be the experience of the child of God. The flesh has dominated territories of your life for a long time. And it does not want to lose control. The flesh desires to dominate. And to totally rule every part of our lives. It will not tolerate spiritual advances with God and will proceed to seek to hinder any going forth in holiness. Let's remember that the Lord considers self-ambitions just as wicked as open sin. You may turn to Mark chapter 8. I want you to think of what the Lord said to Peter when he was to hear of the Savior going to the cross. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Here's a time where the Lord takes his disciples aside and he begins to give a full disclosure of what lies ahead. In other words, he's speaking about Calvary here. He's going to be openly rejected by the chief priests and elders. He's going to be taken by the hands of cruel and wicked men. And he's going to be killed and after three days rise again. And and, and this is all new to the disciples. You see the next verse. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. From selfish motives, Peter sought to rule out the cross. Lord, you're not going to Calvary. 
You're not going that way. And the Lord exposes his motives as a work of Satan, as a work of the devil. The flesh, you see, is selfish. The flesh is also subtle. I said to you, I'd bring you back to Deuteronomy 25, because I want to read the next verse. Verse 18. Deuteronomy 25. Remember, Moses says, remember what the Malachites did to you? Verse 18. How he met thee by the way, and smote the hindermost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee. When I was faint and weary, and he feared not God. Do you remember, Israel, what Amalek did? And do you see, men and women, the attack from the Amalekite? It wasn't from the front. It was from the rear. It was a cowardly way. They attacked Israel, not in the strongest point, but on their weakest because Moses reminds them, it's where the feeble were. It's where those who were faint and weary. And Amalek had no fear of God. And is that not a true picture of how the flesh operates and how it will attack in a most subtle manner? The attacks come against our weakest points. The flesh does not attack you at your strongest point. But it will attack you at your weakest point. In those areas where you failed. Maybe we could bring them into that word of the besetting sins, if you like, that Paul speaks about in Hebrews. And sometimes you've struggled over those things to go on. And there's never a place where we are exempt from such attacks. That's how the flesh operates. And your weakest point, by the way, is different from my weakest point. Some of you, it might be the drink. Because you've been at it. You've been at the strong drink of the world. I'm only using that as an example or an illustration. That's not my weakest point because I've never been there. But you have a weaker point and I have a weaker point. And that's where the flesh will attack again and again. And surely it does flag up a little note of caution. That is, spiritually, not to be lagging behind in your walk with God. Peter's a good example. We've already noted what, how Israel were described here at the back, the hindermost. There was weak ones there. There were feeble ones there. And that's where they felt the attack, mostly from Amalek. But Peter, I could bring before you as a good example, because on the eve of the Savior's crucifixion, what do we read about Peter? He followed afar off. He followed afar off. But soon he was found around that fire, warming himself. And soon he denied the Lord he loved with oaths and curses. Men and women, be aware of walking afar off. We ought to pray. We ought to pay attention to what Paul states in Romans 7. Romans 7 and 23, he says this, I'll just read it to you. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body 
of this death. That's the Apostle Paul. You, I've said to you, will have a, an attack of the flesh. You'll have this conflict until you get the glory. But men and women, so did the Apostle Paul. The good that I would, I do not. He knew about the conflict. He knew about the law, warring against the law of the new man. That's a glorious passage, of course, to underline to you that there will be no sinless perfection in any child of God this side of eternity. The Apostle Paul never knew it. You or I are not going to know it either. One day we will. The conflict. Let me show you the confrontation. Moses could well have argued with the Lord about the inexperience of the nation of Israel. After all, they had never engaged in open warfare beforehand. He could have run away from the battle. But what we see in verse 9 is the course of action that Moses did take. And by inference, what we must also do, and that is one of confrontation. But before we enter into that, just consider the timing here. The timing of the attack is noted by the, simply by the word then in verse 8. Then came Amalek. What was that time for Israel? What does then refer to? I suggest that it was a time where they were moving forward. They were elder, the wilderness of sin. They're going towards that Mount Horeb area or that area of Sinai that God had promised to Moses that he would meet with them. It was a place of good pasture and hence the battle. But the timing reminds us that when the church has a desire to go forward, it is then that the flesh will attack. When you progress along the path of God's choosing spiritually, when you have a desire for holiness, when you have a desire to go on to greater heights with God, then you can expect a confrontation with the flesh. The flesh is our enemy because it is an enemy to God who dwells within. The old man wars against the spirit. And you'll realize that. If you have in your heart and your mind to get aside from that work and to get away from that recreation and to get into the closet and to meet with God, you know what happens? The mind's filled with many another thing that has to be done. The dishes have to be done. That bit in the garden has to be done. That phone call has to be made. And before you know it, it's bedtime and you've missed the closet. That's what I'm talking about, men and women here. That's the flesh. Warring against the spirit. Flesh doesn't want you to progress, to go forward with God. And so you will know the attack continually. It was moreover a time of miracles. God had just provided water miraculously for them. And that's also the time when the flesh attacked. It never likes to see the, the blessings of God. Trials often follow triumphs. But the devil never often oversteps the mark, you see. For the water that God gave would strengthen the Israelites for the battle. They had become a stronger people because of the blessing. Their faith was increased. God had provided the water. It's also a time where they were ready to do battle. The Lord could have brought them the short route by the way of the Philistines. We read that earlier in our studies, but he didn't because they weren't ready. 
But as they journeyed, they would have been trained. And now, while they're inexperienced in actual battle, they weren't untrained. God knew they were now ready. And we can look for excuses not to do battle against the flesh. We can hide behind our inexperience. We can certainly seek a way to run away from it and deny the reality of it. But the answer is to face the battle head on. And we do that not because we have any ability of ourselves, but instead knowing that our sufficiency is of the Lord. Through his help and by his grace, we can pull down the strongholds of the old flesh. For notice what Moses did here. That's not one of idly standing by. He was proactive. He's not passive. But instead, he calls for men to go and to fight in verse 9. He said unto Joshua, choose us out men, go out, fight with Amalek. The word fight means to do battle with. The call was one to intensify the vigor and determination in a very hostile situation. Likewise, for the child of God, we're to follow holiness. But we're not called to ignore the unholy tendencies of the flesh. You see, this is a life and death issue. Paul brings it out to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 10. I'll just read, don't have to turn, verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. Child of God, if you uh, live after the flesh, you satisfy the flesh. You know what happens? There's a deadness. There's a deadness spiritually. And you'll not desire the closet. And you'll not desire the, the prayer meetings before the meetings. Or you'll not desire the Thursday night prayer meeting. You'll not desire to do that little word in season for the Lord and outreach. There's a deadness. It's a life and death issue. Israel had received the manna and the water that continued every day, but they also had to counteract the enemy that faced them. And men and women, we cannot expect in this world to live a passive life. We cannot eat of God's provision, if you like. We cannot drink of that everlasting spring and just expect Amalek to go away. You'll see also that Moses didn't enter into any agreement. He didn't suggest any compromise. He doesn't bring a treaty forth here that they could sign. He doesn't even offer to share the water or the manna with them. It was warfare. He was standing their ground and to Joshua the command was clear. Fight with Amalek. Is not there a lesson therein that we must continually learn? That is, lesson never Never give in to the flesh. To surrender on this battlefield will rise up against us in many other battlefields. Before we know it, we'll be helping our offspring to raise little Amaleks. Here's a conflict which is no room for compromise, nor pacts, nor agreements. Instead of giving in to fleshly ways, we must stand our ground for God. Romans chapter 13, I know I've been there in the book of Romans often, but it is necessary. Romans 13, 14 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Put ye on, just as you put your clothes on in the morning, make sure you put on the Lord. Make sure you put on the battle armor against the flesh. See, it's Spurgeon said, the flesh is greedy and never hath enough. And if you give it some provision, it'll steal much more. This confrontation also meant intercession. The battle ensued below, but all the while, Moses was to assume the position of an intercessor. He went up to the top of the hill with the rod of God in his hand. When the hands were lifted up, Israel prevailed. When they were let down, Amalek prevailed. Surely, is it not a picture of prevailing prayer? Aaron and Hur, they assist Moses to keep his hands up. And that's what we do when as believers we come together. We join hands, as it were, in the great work of intercession unto God. That's what's needed. That's what's needed. I don't subscribe, men and women, to this notion that is prevalent today, especially in the back of the last two years we've been through, that we can be a church in our own house. I've got to get that out of our head. There's people lying on the sofa this morning and they think they're doing worship because they're able to avail of some service or maybe three, four or five services that they'll flick across within the space of an hour and they think that's worship because it's accessible on the internet. Men and women, worship is coming together with others of like precious faith. That's how needful it is. The Lord has given us this lovely building to come together as little families. And that's what happens on a Thursday night or before the meetings. There's a coming together and there's a joining hands in intercession to God. And there's some of you we're missing. We're missing you. There's nothing like coming together with others who have the same cause at heart to pray. You know, Paul knew the value of that. I'm, I'm back again into Romans. Romans 15, verse 30. He, here's what Paul says. Now, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. That I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. There's three things there. And he wants them to join together with him in prayer. That he might see those three things brought out and fulfilled. If we are to overcome the attacks of the flesh, then we must become a people of prayer. Not just talk about it. Not just read about it. But we must take up the mantle of intercession and really pray. May we do so even in these days. May we pray until we see the prevailing work of God in a battle. That's what Moses did and commanded to do. There's one final thought with this I'll close the charge. You see, the passage leaves us in no doubt 
But what Moses did in his confrontation against Amalek was the right course of action. Verse 13, And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Discomforted means they weakened, they disabled them. Instead of Israel being defeated, Amalek were put down, they were defeated. By depending upon the Lord and by fighting faithfully, they were to enjoy the victory. As believers, we're not to live defeated lives. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We already are in the victory that Christ has purchased. But we ought also to live every day practically in that victory. As those who are conquerors. Because we are one with Christ. Did you see the little detail in verse 12? But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. All day. The battle raged. But the battle with Amalek was not only fought in the light of the sun, it was also won in that same light. We as God's people have been given the light of the gospel. It's revealed Christ unto us. We're also given the light of his grace and truth to walk every day. Every day. Psalm 89. Verse 15. Psalm 89 and 15 says this. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord. In the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day. And in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. There's a wee picture there in verse 15. The people shall know the joyful sound. You see the high priest. He had a garment with bells on the tassels of it. And particularly when he was coming out from the the holiest of holies, the people would hear he's coming. He had made atonement for them. And that atonement, that blood presented on the mercy seat on the day of atonement had been acceptable. And he was now coming out, they can hear the bells ringing. Men and women, we know the joyful sound. And God's people walk in the light of his countenance. In light of that once for all work of atonement on the cross. And we rejoice all the day. All the day. All battles with the flesh are won in that same light. As God gives us more light we have more warfare. And we have more victory in that light. Until until we reach the very light of glory. Heaven itself. The victory over Amalek was... That which involved the sword, verse 13. It's the only weapon, you'll notice, as mentioned. Only weapon that was effective in the, in the fierceness of Amalek was the sword. You might be interested to know this is the first mention of Joshua. You'll come across him much, of course, after this. But here's the first mention. And we find him, he's a man that he's well able to wield the sword. 
And so we cannot expect any victory over the flesh apart from the authority of the Scriptures. It's not conventions. It's not initiatives that are needed. It is to know how better to wield the sword, which is the Word of God. For it is that sharp two-edged sword accompanied by prayer that defeats the enemy of the flesh. Moses on the hill, intercession. Joshua below fighting with a sword. The word of God. The two accompany each other. And you see that having obtained the victory, that Moses raised the standard in verse 15. He called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, means sign or standard. The Lord, our banner. Moses, by using this name, was acknowledging that the victory was in the Lord. Their banner, their standard. The great comfort was that one day they would not have to fight with Amalek. Verse 14 says it. The Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in the book, rehearse it in the years of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. One day they wouldn't have to fight Amalek. But for now, the struggles are in ending. As verse 16 will indicate to us, there will be war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's continuous. That's why I've said to you, child of God, here's the battle at last. As long as you are on this earth, you'll have to fight against the flesh, as I will. But one day, thank God, we'll never have to contend again with the flesh. One day. That will be when we reach heaven itself. But until then, raise the banner high. Walk in the light. Keep the sword close at hand. And never, never entertain retreat. May God bless this word to your heart this morning. For his own name's sake. Number 526, just in closing. Trust the Lord will bless his word to your soul today. I have only one life on this earth, and as vapor is passing away, I must labor for treasures of worth. Their toil ends at the close of the day. What's the words of the third verse when we get to it? 526, let's stand as we sing it.
God and our Father, we thank thee for thy word. We bless thee for the instruction of it. And, O God, how we recognize we have an enemy in the flesh that comes suddenly, unexpectedly, and continually. And, Lord, we pray that we must not, Lord, give in to it. We pray, Lord, that we might do battle against it as Moses and Joshua did. We pray, Lord, for the twofold uh, weapon of prayer and the sword being used well. Lord, that thou would instruct us. Thou would help us to get the victory over the flesh. Lord, give us the victory over the flesh this week. Pray, Lord, that thou would give us the victory in the place of prayer and the word. And, O God, that we might, Lord, ascend to that greater height with God. Lord, the old flesh will drag us back. We pray, Lord, against it today. We ask, Lord, that we might be aware of it. Lord, on our guard about it. Lord, I pray that thou would help each of our people. Bless any of us unsaved. Lord, give, Lord, the victory today over sin at the cross. We pray that they might close in with thine offer of mercy and salvation. Part us now with thy blessing. Bless us the rest of the Sabbath. Do us good. Bless us again tonight and I will. We pray in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.